everyone. Welcome to BBS Radio and Meta Mondays. I'm your host, Adina B, with my esteemed guest, Tony Ortega. I know that you've heard of him. He was formerly the editor of The Village Voice. He's written about Scientology since 1995. He wrote a book in 2015 called The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, and it's really about the infamous campaign of terror and what Scientology did to really destroy a person named Paulette Cooper. So he does continue to write, and he writes from his blog, The Underground Bunker. And I'm going to just bring him on now. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on, Dina. Thank you very much. Tony, I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to start because I want to ask you personal questions. I definitely want to ask about Scientology and the book because the book for me was like reading a mystery novel, but it wasn't. It was absolutely real. But let me start with you. I do know that you were just interested in this and you started to do it in 1995. But really, what was it that got you hooked on this? Well, you know, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. And I think if you grow up in L.A., you have a certain awareness of Scientology because that's one of its main, you know, places. And uh, so I, I can I remember reading about L. Ron Hubbard dying in 1986 and that kind of thing. And so in 1995, I was actually living in Phoenix, and I, I just stumbled on this really interesting story about a guy named Rick Ross, who's a very well-known, nationally known culty programmer. And he, his, I decided to write a profile of him, and his story, part of it, was about Scientology. And that was really the first time that I really dug into it and started learning that there was so much more to know than what was generally in the press. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the kind of person, I'm the kind of journalist that I love when there's a mystery to solve. And I realize that as well known as some people know Scientology, there are so many things that are unexplained and, and, and have not been resolved. And that's just, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing as a Scientologist really gets interested in, a journalist really gets interested in. So I just, you know, I was working for a kind of paper where uh, every once in a while, you know, I was supposed to do kind of a magazine feature every month, and I couldn't write about Scientology all the time. But every couple of years, I would come back to it. And uh, through the through the late '90s, I was doing some really fun stuff. And um, you know, it just sort of developed into something that I, I had really worked out getting a lot of good sources, and it just seemed like there was never-ending stuff. And finally, when I was at the Village Voice, one of my uh, jobs there was to help the staff really stop thinking in the, as a kind of a paper newspaper and think more as a, a website. And, you know, I, I wanted to set an example. I wanted to contribute things to the website myself. And in, in 2011, I realized that there was something going on in Texas with Scientology that I was covering that nobody else was covering. And I realized, you know, I could write about Scientology every day. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that's and that's when I decided to do that. I just I just decided that I wanted to blog about Scientology, about the way the, uh, that other people blog about the Supreme Court or about Congress or whatever. And I, I made it my own little niche. And, and to this day now, five years, six years later, I'm, I'm pretty much the only journalist in the world that takes on Scientology as a daily beat. 
That's true. But I also know that Paulette Cooper, who's the subject of your book, started giving you praise and saying, keep going. Well, not praise, but she gave you encouragement. And I thought that was back when you had first started. Yeah, back in the 90s when I was still in in Phoenix and Los Angeles, I started to get these emails from somebody named Paulette. And, you know, if you're in this field, you, of course, know the name Paulette Cooper because if Scientology is known for retaliating against people and investigating people, every, you know, people will always tell you, well, nobody got it worse than Paulette Cooper. I mean, she was this journalist who was one of the first people to write a book about Scientology, and then they decided to try and destroy her completely, and they spent decades uh, harassing her and following her. And so I started to get these emails with the name Paulette. I thought, boy, that, that couldn't be the same one, and, and it sure was. And, I, you know, she had kind of disappeared after settling her cases in 1985, and so here in 1999, I was getting these emails, and I was really surprised that she was still engaged. You know, she was still watching the field, and it it, it was wonderful to get encouraging emails from her, and, and to know that she was reading and she cared about the subject still. So then later, uh, years later, when I was at the Voice in New York, uh, I, I reconnected with her again, and then I said, "Listen, I'd really like to dig into your story," um, and that's that's when I realized that this was one of those stories everyone thought they sort of knew, but then once you start to dig into it, you realize that there's a much better story than people realize. In fact, there were a lot of unanswered questions that even Paulette had, and that's mm-hmm. really what drew me to that story uh, in 2012 when she and I started working together was, uh, again, there were all these mysteries to solve. I mean, the, one of the first ones we did was I realized that you know she had not, she and her sister were still in 2012, trying to understand how they had survived the Holocaust as small children in Belgium. They, did, they didn't even know that. And so that was one of the first things that she and I set out to do in our project. And we, we came up with some amazing material about how that happened. So that was when we realized we were you know, really hitting on something unique and, and interesting. Uh, and so we just kept working for a couple of years, trying to fill in these gaps and correct the record and And I not only talked to Paulette for, you know, a couple of years, but I also went and I looked up people that were part of the story. And not only her old friends and family and and people that had could corroborate for me what she went through, but for the first time, I actually got some of the spies who had worked for Scientology in these operations against her. I got them to talk about it. And I told them that I wasn't, I really wanted to know their point of view. And I think if you read the book, you'll see that, you know, it's 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 really a, a a history. It's not a memoir. It's a history where I've done my best to show the different points of view. And there are definitely points in the book where Paulette makes some decisions that you'll scratch your head at. You know, and and I tried to show how these spies felt about her and what they were doing. I wanted to give that full that full view of what happened. You definitely do. I want to say yes. There were. For me, I felt that it was a mystery that you tied up in the end. There were times in the book where I thought to myself, Paulette, what are you doing? You know, there there were those times. Why right. do you think, though, that you were the only one who made a, that a book about her, considering she was public enemy number one, you know, for Scientology, and you're the only one who did that? Well, I'm, I'm fortunate. I guess my timing was good. She had been approached before. Uh, at least one other journalist had talked to her about maybe trying to 
do something, some kind of a treatment for TV or something like that. But I was really the first one that came to her and said, listen, I'd like to really dedicate some time and write a book. And uh, she had seen my other work and we decided to go for it. So I guess, you know, my timing was right. It was a good, you know, uh, just as these books were, the big books were coming out, uh, Janet Reitman's book came out in 2011. Mm -hmm. It was really the first one that was with a major publisher and then Larry Wright just a couple of years later in 2013. Things were starting to loosen up a little bit more. I interested a publisher in London, actually, who uh, published this book. And so my timing was good on all that. And, um, you know, she's wonderful to work with. I mean, it was, it, it, you know, it's interesting because she's still a fighter and she's still, mm -hmm. you know, we had a wonderful time on our book tour together and she was great in front of a crowd. But I can tell you, going through some of those periods, particularly 1973, talking about those months was really difficult for her. I mean, she's still traumatized by the whole thing. I would have been. I mean, she must still be living with post-traumatic stress disorder. When you go through something like that, it just changes you. It really does. Um, I just wanted to, I, I still can't understand why LRH, who is, you know, Ron Hubbard, why was he so obsessed about her? What was it? Do you? What's your opinion? That's a good question, and there's no question that he was. I mean, I I, I have documents uh, of talking about how even on the ship, out at sea, he was screaming about this, you know, Paula Cooper woman, um, because I think he, you know, he'd had a, a rough time for several years as far as governments investigating him and not getting what he wanted uh he really saw himself as kind of taking over at least a country if not the world and there were always obstacles in the way and i think for some reason he saw this one woman he sort of saw a symbol of all that i think in particular the fact that it was a woman really really bugged him and what made her different was you know there were other journalists that came along and wrote mm -hmm. about wrote about scientology at that time but they would write a good article in the magazine or they would write a good book and then they disappear. But Paulette, she kept after it. Not, not only did she do a magazine story, but she turned into a book. But then in the, in the next year, in 72, she got together with Hubbard's own son, mm -hmm. Elmer Hubbard Jr., also known as Nibs, and Robert Kaufman, another author, and uh, uh, Bernie Green, a, a guy that had run a mission. And in the fall of 72, they went on a media tour. They were on TV shows. They were on radio shows, really trying to raise awareness about Scientology. This, I think, is what really bugged Hubbard, was that she wasn't going away. Even after they harassed her, they, they had done some things that tended to scare people away, and it just never scared her away. So I think her persistence, the fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was so effective, I mean... You know, she was helping other journalists. After her book came out, she was helping other journalists do their stories. She helped uh, in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1974, did an amazing series on Scientology that was nominated for a Pulitzer. That series benefited from the help of Paulette Cooper. And they knew, they knew that that was happening, that she just wouldn't give up, that she kept pushing. I know. I think, honestly, the fact that she was also so petite and so lovely, as he called her, really also contributed to that. This little, beautiful, petite woman is really getting the best of Scientology. What <clears throat> I didn't understand was, well, Nibs is a whole different <laughs> question. But what I really wanted to say was, after this whole thing came down, 
and I'm going ahead in time to about when after she was indicted and after all of this, they gave her about a year and they said, if you go to therapy and if you keep your nose clean, we will let this go. Right. Why did Scientology at that time never start doing it again? They actually left her alone. That's a good question. You're right. And and she knew that. She was so worried that at any time during that period, they might try another prank. Um, I think, you know, probably the best explanation is that um, Scientology then and even Scientology today, as organized and as scary as they can be when they've really got everything aimed at somebody, Scientology gets really distracted and will sometimes leave people alone, not because they've changed their opinions about them just because they get busy with something else. And I have to think about that period of it. There might've been something else going on. It's that was 74. Uh, you know, I don't know what, but today it's definitely the case. Like, you know, I, I call it the eye of Sauron theory, which is that, you know, David Miscavige today is in charge of all of that kind of thing with the church of Scientology. And if, you know, I go through some, harassment not like paulette did but i go through some and 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 i talk to other people that have and we all have the same experience and that is it'll get really intense for a couple of weeks like really scary and there are people visiting your family and they're showing up and they're following you and then it dies down and i developed this theory that miscavige is like sauron as long as he's got his vision on you they all go after you in other words he calls somebody in and says hey, what have you done about Mike Rinder this week? Or why aren't you doing something about Leah Remini? Or who's doing something about Ortega? And then they'll just like do all they can for a couple of weeks, but then he's by then he's changed his views to somebody else. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yes, and I, I do. And I, I, think, I think that's probably what happened back then as well, because you're right. There were times, there were times when she was really vulnerable and they didn't attack her. And then there were other times when they attacked her and she was well prepared for it. So... I think the timing was just, you know, Scientology had its own internal things keeping its attention. Well, I think she absolutely deserved that year, but I'm surprised that they didn't. But speaking of David Miscavige, I am still not clear on when LRH died in 1986, why it was David. I do understand his history within the org, but... There were other people that were just as much uh, his right, LRH's right-hand person. Why did everybody just let David take over like that? No one else even, you know, tried. Right. This is a very good question. I think it's just about, you know, whoever tries the hardest, whoever's got the, the most desire to push other people out of the way. Because, you know, before he died, Hubbard had written this um, order. It's a little cryptic. But he had named Pat and Annie Broker um, loyal officers. And most people took that as a, a way of anointing them as his, his successors. Other people disagree. But anyway, it, it kind of looks that way. But he never formally said anything about when I die, this person takes over. So, But Pat was clearly in a position, if he wanted to, he probably could have asserted his authority and taken over. But I, I don't know that he had it in him because... You just have to be so ruthless. And it's clear that, that Miscavige did what he could to maneuver other people out of position. 
there were some women that were close to uh, Hubbard that mm-hmm. might have also taken over, and they just got pushed out of the way. And he was just very good at, at, at pushing and muscling people and becoming the last person on top. And, and then that's all it took. I mean, once, you, once you're the person on top and you've got all the attorneys working for you, that's how it works. And, and there's no, it'd be very difficult for somebody to not knock him off after that point. Let's talk a little bit about L. Ron Hubbard. Um, we, uh, most of us do know, I think, his history as a sci-fi writer, and most of this bio was pretty much made up. But he did have an interesting life. Um, what I really want to get at is, can you tell us what hit, what was so fascinating about him that people would blindly follow his teachings? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, the sort of standard answer that journalists tend to give is that he was so charismatic and such a great storyteller. And he was, a, I mean, if you look at Janet Reitman's book, she does a good job of trying to explain that not only did he have those qualities, but that his timing was perfect. Like in the 50s, he was pitching just the right thing for people coming out of the war era. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, he changed it a little bit. It was His timing was perfect for sort of the young hippies who were trying to look for something different. And, you know, she, she says that his timing was great. But I hear that. But then I actually listen to L. Ron Hubbard lectures. And I do this every once in a while on my website. I'll just put up 10 or 15 minutes of him talking so people can hear it. And I'm sorry. I just don't hear the charisma. <laughs> I, I guess maybe you had to be in the man's presence or something. But he just – he comes off to me like a carnal con man. I, I just – the stuff he talks about just seems so ludicrous. But – Maybe, I guess, in that time, there were a lot of people who were seeking alternatives, and I totally understand that young people want to feel that they're part of something larger and often push away from their family, and Scientology is very good at, at sort of, they, they have a word for it, they call it finding your ruin. They, when, you, when they first approach you, they talk to you about what's going on in your life and listen, and listen to what you say to find the button to push that will convince you that Scientology has some larger purpose to your life. And then Hubbard's, um, he combined that with the fact that, I think sometimes people forget about this, not only was he a science fiction writer, but a lot of the early Scientologists were science fiction fans. And they liked the idea that, okay, we're reading about all these galaxies and all this stuff, this man is actually telling us we could go there. You know, it's a mental trip. It's a trip back in time. But there was something about that that I think some people found really attractive. And I also know that in the 70s, we were coming into forget about the drugs. It doesn't work. So what else can we do? And I see that happening then. But I it's very hard to believe that after all of the news stories broke, Lisa McPherson, who died, you know, everything that had happened, that people were still being drawn into it, as well as the money. I wanted to ask you, how do normal people end up paying for this and having the time to work? They're always there and they have to come up with thousands and thousands of dollars. It's it's incredible. I mean, I remember one time I was talking to Jason McGay, that actor yes. from Chicago PD, and he was telling me about just what it was like to go to FLAG. And see, if you start up in Scientology in your local group, whether it's, somebody, it's a field auditor, then you go to the local org, 
eventually as you go up the bridge and things start to get more expensive, all the push, all the pressure is to eventually go to flag, the flag land base in Clearwater, Florida, because that's the only place where you can get certain high level things. So they make it feel like, okay, you're, you want to be a real Scientologist, you got to go to flag. And Jason was explaining to me, you know, he would go to flag and let's say he was there to do an L rundown, which is one of these high level things that they dangle in front of you like this is the ultimate. Well, one of the L rundowns is going to cost you twenty or $30,000, okay? But he says that when you get there, you you know, you have to block out a couple of weeks of time. So you have to find a way to be not at your job for two or three weeks. And also, if you have a family, you typically have to bring all them too. And so you've got to get enough hotel room space, and you got to feed all your kids and make sure your kids are taken care of while you're in the, the you know, processing all day and then once you get there they tell you okay i know you're here to, for the l rundown but first you have to go through a false purpose rundown right you have to go through the security thing because they have to make sure that you haven't come out and changed your mind about things mm -hmm. and you're here really to gather information on there or something so they put you through this interrogation for a week which they charge you for mm -hmm. okay so, you know, by the time you leave this place, that $20,000 processing you wanted has ended up costing you sixty or 70000 And you had to be away from work for three or four weeks. So, yeah, it's an incredible commitment of time and money. And it makes you wonder, who are these people that they can do that? Well, that's why I, I'm saying this. I understand the prominent people, you know, who are stars or who make a lot of money and I can understand they just they just hand it all over but I don't understand the neg the regular normal day-to-day -day people who go to work how can they afford this and live and have time you're always there so it makes no sense to me at all what could th maybe some of them work there and that's how they pay for it but other than that I don't understand you know it's it has never appealed to very many people. I, I always try to remind people of that. They've never had the numbers they claim. They've I never know. had millions of members. It may, at its greatest extent, it got up to about 100,000 people in 1990. It's probably down to only 20,000 now. And so mm -hmm. first, so, so just keep in mind that, that the people who dedicate themselves to this and turn over incredible amounts of money, there's just a small number of these people. And however they've worked it out, some of them impoverish themselves. Some of them take two mm -hmm. second, third mortgages and really wreck their finances over this. But once that small number of people buys into this idea, they buy into an idea that they have the secret. You know, mm -hmm. this is it. L. Ron Hubbard was the first human being to understand what this universe is really all about and what we have to do here. It's like the Matrix. Everyone else is walking around in a dream. We are the only ones that understand how we're going to save this planet. Once you buy into that dream, and Paul Haggis has explained that uh, another thing about being that small group is the criticism you hear will tend to make you even more dedicated. It's like, yeah, of course people are ridiculing us. They don't realize that we're the ones with all the answers. So it can, it's a very powerful idea if you buy into it. And that's why people are willing to give up their kids, move around the country, invest all their money is they've decided that they're living in this bizarre movie where the end of the world is you know the, the survival of the world is in their hands 
I can't believe that there are only 20,000. I thought, well, I know Mark Headley was, Mark Headley also defected, but he was the guy who did all the shows, all the video kind of work. And he said that they would, that David would make him make the amount of people, you know, 20 times larger than there was. So I could understand the people who were in there thinking that Scientology had so many more people. But I'm just wondering how they could all really have been so isolated and not even seen something that that was on somewhere, anywhere. Right. No, they're very good at ignoring things. And, and the reason why is that if if you sneak a peek at Leah's show Tuesday mm-hmm. night and they find out about it, you will go through weeks of intense interrogations that you have to pay for. And the chances are, if they do find out about it, it's probably because somebody in your own family turned mm-hmm. you in. Yes. That's what they go through. They're always completely terrified of their own family members because your child may say something about, hey, you know, daddy was watching Leah. If they hear that, they will pull you in and you may spend two or three weeks and thousands of dollars being interrogated over it. So knowing that, they're very, very good at ignoring anything about Scientology in the press. Is that called out ethics <laughs> or it's just ethics? When, and then when you... ethics, ethics is the pro, that whole apparatus of disciplining people, right? I mean, that was this wonderful Orwellian word he came up with in the '60s. Uh, when Hubbard says ethics, what he really means is obedience. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the word they use for what you and I are doing right now is called entheta, and that is that is there's theta and then there's entheta, entheta, which is uh, you know negative you know, material about the church they would consider negative. And so Scientologists would be very careful not to listen to this broadcast because, again, they could pay a really steep price for it. Well, you're definitely an SP, and <laughs> of course I am. So, um, But I also wanted to ask, uh, do children ever go into the hole or do they ever get, do they ever have to do the RH, I don't know what it's called, the, uh, the yeah. one you have to, yes. Do they ever yes, have to do that? Definitely. Oh, my God, def- really? There have definitely been children in the RPF. Now, the hole is special because the hole is at int base, and it's only for a particular number of very high-ranking executives. Right, okay. And that's also what makes it unusual, is that it's like Miscavige took all of his top lieutenants and put mm-hmm. them in this basically prison. But the the Sea Org has its own RPF. And just to, for your listeners, just so they understand, there are three kinds of Scientologists. There's publics. These are people who just belong to Scientology and take courses and donate money, but they don't actually work for the church. And that's uh, the largest group of them. Then there's a smaller group that are staff, and these are the people who work at the local org. They sign two and a half to five year contracts, and they get paid something like a round minimum wage. And they're the folks that are working down at your the, the facility they've got in your downtown, your city. There's some of them, not not that many people are staff, but there's some. And then there's the Sea Org, and these are the hardcore, most dedicated. There's probably about three or four thousand at this point, all around the world. These are the people who have signed billion-year contracts, promising to work for Scientology lifetime after lifetime. They're paid almost nothing. They run all of the most important Scientology facilities 
in Los Angeles, in Clearwater, and in England, uh, and a few other places around the world. Uh, these are people that give up their families, give up their independence, give up their freedom, and they sign those contracts. I've talked to people that sign those contracts when they're six or seven years old, uh, and they actually go to work for the Sea Org when they're like 13 or 14 years old. And yes, some of those 13 or 14 year olds have been put on the RPF. The RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, developed as the Sea Org's prison detail. So if you had done something wrong or you would, you know, needed to be disciplined, you get put into this thing called the RPF, which is even more sort of austere than the life they're already living. And you only get to eat after everyone else is ate table scraps. You have to run from place to place. You can't talk to anybody. You have to wear a special black uniform. And when, it, when Hubbard first developed the RPF on the ships back in like 74 or something like that, he had, you know, it was, it was something that, okay, somebody screwed up, put them on the RPF, a few weeks later we'll see how they're doing, take them back off. But it's developed so now people go on the RPF and they're stuck on it for years. Mm-hmm. I've, t- I've talked to people that were on the RPF for seven or eight years. You know, uh, Chuck Beatty. From uh, 19, like, I don't know, 1995 to 2002, he was just completely isolated from the outside world. Not, not, not just, you know, even from other Scientologists, and just on this RPF prison detail. He was telling me about how the night of the millennium, right, December 31st, 1999, he was standing out in a field in, in, this, in this RPF camp wondering what was happening in the rest of the world. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing that that goes on in the United States. I know. Um, one of the most horrific things, well, this is not bad considering what's gone on, but I I put it together having read Mike's book that he had been in the hole for about two years. And then there was some celebration that David Miscavige was having, and he literally pulled Mike Rinder out of the hole, stuck a suit on him, put him on the platform, and had him speak, took right. him out out put him back in the hole and you can see mike is gray literally gray and looks like he hasn't eaten in three years it's it's yeah. disgusting it's horrible no, he, he's gone you know and at that point 90, in 2006 the hole was at its worst at that point uh they were this double wide trailer at int base they were only let out for a shower every day and then they had to uh spend the day uh, doing these mind games, accusing each other of crimes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they would bring over this big, you know, uh, bucket and feed him slop out of it. And mm-hmm. so that's why you can see that he's like skeletal practically when they let him out briefly. Uh, they let him out to handle John Sweeney and the BBC thing. Right. But uh, that's that was, you know, the hole was brutal. Now, in 2009, the Tampa Bay Times revealed the existence of the hole. And so Scientology, uh, Miscavige had to ameliorate it a little bit. And so he allowed them to sleep in actual beds, and then they got to eat at the actual mess hall. But they're still, today, I just got a new report. They're still segregated. This group of people, considered to be in the hole, still sit in that trailer during the day. They go to the birthing at night. They go to eat together. But they are still considered a separate group that are degraded beings. And... It's been 13 years now that some of these people have been there. Okay, help me out here. 
I understand that this is a church. I understand that the state, the church, their government, they're all separated, but this is now criminal. Why is nothing being done? I know Leia is trying, but that's one person. And I know other people are blogging, but what can be done? It's difficult. It's so difficult because the United States government gave them tax exempt status in 1993. Mm -hmm. And believe me, a lot of these things, a lot of these accusations, allegations about how people have been treated have been reported to the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, and they've investigated. The problem you run into is uh, that the courts, the courts are just befuddled by Scientology. Uh, you know, there was a mm -hmm. uh, there was a recent uh, case. Uh, in fact, there's a fascinating case still going on. It's been in court for eight years now in Los Angeles Superior Court. There's a young woman named Laura DiCrescenzo. It's a case I've been watching. And she was a Sea Org member, and like other women, she was forced to have an abortion because in you know Scientology policy, they don't want you to have kids while you're in the Sea Org. And so from about the early 80s all the way to 2010, uh, the policy was if a Sea Org woman gets pregnant, take her to the clinic, make her mm -hmm. have an abortion. And we know that because numerous women have come out and talked about it. A couple of the men uh, mm -hmm. who, were, who, were, who their job was to convince these women to do that, they've come forward. Uh, so there's no question this was done for years and years. And uh, she sued. She sued because, you know, she got into the Sea Org at 12, and, uh, you know, um, she suffered all this mistreatment, and then she was forced to have an abortion at 17. Technically, she was still a child. Mm -hmm. So Scientology fought tooth and nail to keep her from getting her own records went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and they lost, and they had to turn over her records. And I wrote a story based on what's in them, and it's just disgusting. I mean, she was she was uh, punished because she dared to write a note admitting that she missed her mother when she was 12, okay? So, I mean, it's just it's just disgusting and brutal. And, and the Scientology have been telling the courts, we don't have to turn this stuff over. It's religious. Mm -hmm. And I and I you know I I'm the only journalist that's raising questions about why this attorney, for example, gets away with this. This attorney, Bert Dykesler, told the California Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court that this material was religious in nature and should not be re re uh, you know released. When it finally was released, it's anything but religious. It's about how to keep a child away from her mother. It's about how to punish children for not doing their you know menial labor. It's disgusting. Anyway, I don't know if anybody's going to pay a price for that or not. But at one, at one sorry. point, answer, I'm finally going to answer your question. At, to one, at one point, they were uh, in a recent court uh, hearing about this in a, in a court motion. Scientology just finally came out, admitted it, and said, Your Honor, these are ministers. We can treat them however we want. And that's their trick. See, it doesn't matter if you're six or seven years old or 10 or 12 and you're cleaning out uh, dumpsters with toothbrushes. They call you a minister and then say, well, they're doing religious work and the courts can't do anything. They know this. They, they just take advantage of our courts that bend over backwards for groups that call themselves religious. And I don't know. Is it always going to go on? Are the courts going to wise up? It's just I don't know. It's, it's a really frustrating situation. I know that um, the IRS caved because of all the lawsuits, and it's hard to believe that they did. But speaking about coming forward, there are a few things. I know you broke the story on the FBI investigation, and I wanted to know, are you also really the first person to know that Leia was defecting? 
Uh, actually, it was Larry Wright uh, who, who revealed in The New Yorker that the FBI was investigating uh, Scientology for that, that labor trafficking thing in 2011. Um, I did break the story that Leah came out. I, in, on July, in July 2013, um, I broke the story that she had left Scientology over that. And, and I had a lot of good detail right from the beginning that it was mm-hmm. she had been to Tom Cruise's wedding and she'd asked where Shelley Miscavige was and she was cursed at by Tommy Davis and all that stuff that, that everyone learned through her book. I had in that very first story on a Monday in July of 2013 and then three or four days later, the New York Post put Leah on its cover and said, you know, actress leaves Scientology and some people were saying, oh, look, the New York Post broke this big story and People Magazine was one of the ones that said, no, 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 it was Tony Ortega several days earlier was the one that got that story. So, you know, for us journalists, that that does matter a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, I had I had that story first and then I broke the story that she reported uh, uh, Shelley as a missing person to the mm-hmm. LAPD a month later. And uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, if you're if you love her show, you should definitely check out my site because um, Leah lets me see the episodes a little early, and then I get to do a little preview uh, the day of the show and stuff. And so you'll get to get a little inside information before everybody else. So you should check my website for that. I absolutely do <laughs> do that, um, and I think everybody should. I wanted to know. I'm going back to Paulette and your book. Um, you know, at the end of the book, Tony kind of wraps it all up for us. And I know that there was only one person that ever came forward after that reign of terror. I want to know, with all of these people coming back out who had been in there for 30, 35 years, why hasn't anybody else come forward to Paulette? She's still very visible. Why didn't they say, I am sorry? Well, some of them aren't. I mean that's the truth. I mean I, there's there's one there's one uh, operative back in the day who worked for the Guardian's office who was actually very helpful to me. And I told him I said, listen, I know you don't like her still, but I, I, it's okay. I, that doesn't that's not, I want to know the story. I don't. This isn't about you know who likes what. And he was actually very helpful to me in the book, but he he still doesn't like her at all, and and doesn't think she deserves any sort of uh, celebration at all for what she did. So uh, Len Zinberg's the person you're talking about, and, and that was just really fortuitous. Right, right in the middle of our project, she got that email from Len, and then I reached out to him, and we had a nice talk. And what a great guy. I don't know if you've seen him on uh, Leah's Lea show. And mm-hmm. he's such a great guy. And, and he, he did come to that realization that, you know, why am I working for these people to harm somebody like this? And... He he's so apologetic and genuine, and uh, it's been great getting to know him. I wish more people were like Lynn and could realize, you know, could look at what they did before. So, but no, I mean, there are people. There was actually a Guardian's office person whose title, his literal title, was Cooper IC, mm-hmm. which means Cooper in charge. He was in charge of the Cooper case. And he's left Scientology. He's been out of Scientology for 10 or 15 years. And I called him, and I, I explained to him that I was writing this book about Paulette and that I really wanted to hear from the people that, you know, were doing that back then. And he just let me know that he thinks that she's, you know, the worst person in the world, and he, and he doesn't think she deserves a book written about her, blah, 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 and, you know, never call me back, you know. 
So, so that's the thing. I mean, it, it would be nice if more folks would come forward and tell us their stories, but a lot of these people just haven't changed their minds. I don't, I can't believe it. I hear them apologizing for everything else, for breaking up families, for, for being strong, you know, strong arming people, but she's the one thing they still hate. That, that makes no sense to me. It makes well, no sense to me. I don't yeah. even understand it. They're yeah. sorry about everything. I know. Well, not everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, apparently not. I wanted to just ask you a question because I don't know what Tommy Davis does. And I just want to know what his role is. He's there, but what does he do? Well, he's such a, you know, uh, object of fascination for some people. That's really? why I keep <laughs> writing about him because people always ask about him. Tommy grew up in Scientology. He's the son of Ann Archer, the actress. And good-looking dude, you know, and, and he, bright young guy, and Jason Begay would tell me about how fun it was to hang out with Tommy when he was a kid, just, you know, a lovable kid. And then as he grew up and uh, dedicated himself to the Sea Org, he started to rise very high in the, op- in the organization, and he, he basically became Tom Cruise's, like, you know, gopher and handler and whatever Tom needed, Tommy Davis was there to help out. And it, it, it got him all the way to the point that by 2005 or six, uh, David Miscavige decided to make Tommy the face of Scientology. And he got to be the international spokesman for the church. And so it was Tommy Day. And, and at the, in that period, I think David Miscavige was emboldened by the fact that he now had Tom De- uh, Cruz back in the full Tom was actually secretly out for a while then he came yes. back and he got wound up really to be the most you know gung-ho Scientologist and once he had that I think it filled David Miscavige with confidence and he decided to take a really aggressive uh, stance with the media and so from 2005 to about 2010 uh, Scientology was very uh, uh, proactive about uh, setting up interviews with a, uh, a journalist, being very aggressive with them, and Tommy Davis was the guy. I mean, he's the one that walked out of an interview with Martin Bashir on ABC, and he's mm-hmm. the one that got John Sweeney at the BBC to scream his head off, and uh, and so he was he was very entertaining, uh, and uh, he went on CNN and said some stupid things, and then ultimately, I think his downfall was that. Larry Wright was just too good for him, you know. Lawrence Wright was working on his article for the New Yorker, and it was clear it was, you know, it was ba- you know, it was going to be about Paul Haggis. And at some point, you know, Wright had been asking and asking the church for information for help, and finally Tommy and some attorneys came out to New York, the New Yorker office, with 48 binders of material. I think they thought they were just sort of going to intimidate the New Yorker. And say, look, we've got, you know, we've got all your questions to answer here. Well, it was, it was like, you know, it was like honey to a bear. I mean, you know, it was the dumbest thing they could have done because all that material then became fantastic for Larry's use in his article and then his book. But uh, Tommy did a really unwise thing. He basically, they were arguing about Hubbard's war record because the official war record that uh, Larry had taken the time to get from the U.S. military, showed that he had a very, you know, undistinguished World War II record, and he did was not injured the way he said he was. And Tommy Davis said, "Look, 
if if Hubbard wasn't injured in World War II, the way he says he was, he said he was machine gunned and stuff, and then he said he discovered these ideas of Dianetics and they healed him, if that's all not true, then Dianetics is not true. And if Dianetics is not true, then Scientology is not true. And, uh, you know, Lawrence Wright and David Rebner couldn't believe what they were hearing. I mean, that's just like, what a setup, you know? And so he wrote that line down, and then he went and confirmed with all the, you know, the medical documents that Hubbard never was hurt, like he said he was. So it was just like the worst thing a spokesman for the Church of Scientology could possibly say. And right after that is when Tommy basically left his job as spokesman. I, you know, I, I would assume that Miscavige had had enough with him and, and got rid of him. So Tommy went to Texas, and he was deposed a couple of years later, uh, 2013. And in that deposition, under oath, he said that he was on leave from the Sea Org, but he was still a member of the Church of Scientology. Uh, after, a year after that, 2014, he moved back to L.A. with his wife, uh, Jessica. And uh, he went to work for this uh, real estate investor named Tom Barrick. A very, he's a billionaire. He's very well-known in that investment world. And uh, he, the, Barrick had been good friends with Tommy's father. Tommy's biological father is a guy named William Davis, who died in 2015. And he was a real estate investor, too. So it was a nice, cushy way to land, right? Tommy Davis mm-hmm. is, now, is now working for this wealthy guy. And he's basically doing for Tom Barrick what he was doing for David Miscavige, right? I mean, he's running the guy's errands and setting up his media, whatever. But then a very interesting thing happened. In February of last year, February 2016, Tommy suddenly switched jobs and went to work for James Packer. James Packer is a billionaire from Australia who became friends with Tom Cruise and was in Scientology from about 2001 to about 2006 left Scientology at that point, we believe. And in 2016, Packer was engaged to Mariah Carey, the singer. He was expanding his uh, gambling empire from Australia to places like Las Vegas. And he was uh, partners in a a mini movie studio with Brett Ratner called Rat Pack. So he hires Tommy Davis, who he had known in Scientology, to basically help him run the movie studio. And what a what an opportunity for Tommy, right? Suddenly he's back in Hollywood. He's helping to run a studio. He's working for his billionaire buddy. We were all like, "Wow, Tommy really has, has sort of scored," you know. But we also wondered, could Tommy be on a mission to get Packer back into the Church of Scientology? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, he's a billionaire. I mean, David Miscavige would love oh, yeah. another billionaire. Oh, yeah. But it turns out that 2016 became the worst year for James Packer in a long time. Mariah Carey dumped him. Uh, Some of his workers who were trying to, some of his gambling workers who were in China trying to entice big gamblers were arrested, and they're still under arrest. Uh, The movie studio had a big flop with, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, It's called Night by Night. not David, Matt David, but his buddy uh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck had a big flop. Mm-hmm. It cost the studio a lot of money. It was a disaster year for Packer. And so he, late last year, he pulled back. He, he, he decided to pull back his big gambling expansion plans. He got out of the movie studio. And in all that turmoil, Tommy left 
that job and went back to working for Barrick now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there was any success in getting Packer back into Scientology or not, but Tommy no longer has that sort of dream job in Hollywood. So that's that's the latest. So, so again, you know, he's not, as far as we know, he's not working for the Church of Scientology right now, but everybody is still so fascinated by the guy that I, I still feel compelled to keep an eye on him. I don't think he'll ever really leave Scientology. His his roots are too strong. I'm going to ask you on about something that could be... Uh, kind of controversial. I know that Leah says that she calls people inside, formerly in Scientology victims. She says it on her show constantly. I think the children certainly are victims, but I think there are a lot of people outside of Scientology <coughs> who might think that, you know, adults knew what they were doing they willingly went in, they willingly handed over their money, their children, and they're not exactly victims. They might have been misled, but victimology, I don't know, you know. So I wanted to ask you about that. What are your thoughts? I, I understand that, you know, that point of view, and, and I definitely hear it from people. And, and you look at some, like I just, I think uh, yesterday, I just put out a new price list that was sent to me that you get when you get into Scientology, you start to get a little more serious, they hand you this price list. And, you know, I, I get a lot of reactions from people like, isn't it, isn't it that point that you realize you're getting into some kind of a scam? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't these people understand? So I, I understand from an outsider's point of view, the frustration of why are these people even getting into this? Can't they see how crazy it is? I understand that. I, I think it was Jason Begay uh, who really kind of, changed my mind about things back in about 2008 because I had uh, written a lot of things about Hubbard and stuff like that. He said, listen, Tony, you know, I think you might do better if you just tried to understand Scientologists from what they've gone through and realize, you know, that, that they, and this is what Leah says, that they really joined for the, for the best reasons, that they wanted to improve themselves, they wanted to improve the world, maybe they were a little naive, but they ended up being part of this just, you know, vicious organization that rips people apart that they had no idea they were joining. And then it just takes a lot of will and guts to pull yourself out because by the time people sort of wake up and leave, their entire family, all their friends are involved. They might work in a company that's got Scientologists. And, you know, leaving can be very, very scary. So I try to keep that in mind. And uh, I try to be as sympathetic as possible to people that are have been in and come out. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why some ex-Scientologists don't like my website and criticize it, because although I'm sympathetic to what they've been through, and I and I always want to hear about people leaving and how they left, every once in a while I also publish an L. Ron Hubbard lecture, and we all look at how ridiculous it is, and, and they don't like that. They like, so I don't know, I think, I think it's some of both. I think that, you know, I want people to see what Scientology is because it's the best way of convincing people they should not want to be part of it. But I also try to be sympathetic to the people that got into it and then came out. Uh, and not just the children, the people that joined as adults. You know, they didn't really always know what they were joining and they've changed their minds and I want to hear what they have to say. I know that you certainly know this because it's both from Mike Rinder and Jason Begay because I had absolutely no clue what it offered anybody. But Mike Rinder said that 
part of it is personal survival. You have to survive. And Jason Begay said that it gives people certainty. And boy, did I get that. Um, can you expound on those? Oh, sure. There's no question that that's what that's the primary thing Scientology is selling is certainty. No question. And I've, I've, I've said that for years that, look, the people who tend to get pulled in are young people who are very confused about life and what they want to get out of it. And, you know, I've talked to people that were really smart people, educated people. But then you you get into the details of why they were vulnerable. They've been through a breakup or they lost a job. You know, it just feels like the world's a scary place and you haven't figured things out. Along comes Scientology and what they offer is order and certainty. Fill out this check sheet, take this course, read this book, and your life will be great. Well, isn't it nice if it worked that way? Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a much more skeptical person and I don't think the world works that way. And it just, we all have to struggle. Each of us has our own personal struggle and things, some things work out and some things don't. There's no magical formula. There's no spreadsheet or check sheet that gives you the answers to all of life's secrets. But, but a, and again, I'll emphasize this again, a few people, a small number of people have been susceptible to that come on that says, oh, you have trouble in life? We have a pamphlet that you fill out and it, your life will be great. Now that wouldn't work with me. It might not work with you, but there are some people that say, I would love for that to be true. I would love to fill out, a t uh, take a quiz, and it'll solve all my problems. And that's basically what Scientology is offering. Yeah, it would have worked with me. Um, <laughs> it really would have. But I, And in fact, in the 70s, I did pick up Dianetics. And um, about three chapters in, I had a chill go up my back and said, oh, this is crazy. But um, so, yeah. It's, and it's a vile book. It's vile. I, whenever, whenever a Scientologist tells me they, their story and they say, and then I picked up the Dianetics and I was blown away. It was so great. I'm like, come on. Did you really read that? Because it's awful. I mean, it's not just badly written, but it's just it's it's rep repelling. I mean, the, what he says about women, what he says about mothers and children, it's mm -hmm. disgusting. And I, I blogged that book from cover to cover. You can still see it yeah. on my website, and you can go through it chapter by chapter. And just, It's just amazing how much disgusting stuff there is in there. It is. And your um, website is The Underground Bunker, correct? org. It's called The uh, Underground Bunker, right? And we have – it's pretty easy to find. You can find that series on Dianetics. We also have one where uh, – Claire Headley took me through each level of the bridge, so you can you get to find out what they're all about, how much they cost, and everything. And uh, yeah, then there's a daily a new daily story every day at 7 a.m. and just a really great commenting crew with a lot of uh, very smart former Scientologists ready to answer any question. Um, and it's and of course now with Le you know when Leah's show is airing, oh my goodness, the place just mm -hmm. really gets roaring. I have to ask you a really silly question, but Tony Ortega dot org. Did you put the dot org as a kind of pun? I, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. I, I, no, I, I got, I bought Tony Ortega org because Tony Ortega.com was not available. Ah. And, and, and the church owns it actually. They use it to direct to slimy material about me. It just uh, hit me. You know, I said, Oh, this is cute, but I guess not. I have so many questions that I want you to expound on, but our hour is up and you have been fabulous. You have been so wonderful. Please come back again, please. Oh, also guys, I just want you to please support the underground bunker. Tony does not get paid for any of this. 
and he's been the voice of this for so long. Tony, I thank you so much for coming on our show today, and please keep up what you're doing. Thank it's you so a, much. It's been a real pleasure. I, you, you ask great questions, and it's, it's really fun to talk to somebody that knows so much. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, we'll see you soon, and have a great week.